I'm going to quickly draw, walk you through what a typical week looks like here, and I'm going to use this diagram to do that. Sometimes what we do, if anybody's read the Bible before, is they will read a Bible story, and then they'll say, okay, this is the story, and they will want to go right away from the story to today and say, what does it mean to me now? What does it mean to me today? They'll pick a story like the promises to Abraham, which we're going to be studying and saying, so how do those promises apply to me? And that could get you into some dicey territory, because <laughs> are we all promised the same things as Abraham? Well, I don't know. Let's, we're going to look at those promises. I don't think that promise is meant directly for us today. And so what we want to do is encourage you not to do this. Don't go straight from the Bible story and say, what does it mean for me today? We want you to take you on a little bit of a journey every time you read a Bible story. And this book that we're doing, Exodus, is a story. It's not, when we did the study of 1 Corinthians last year, that was a letter, and it had lots of argumentation and ideas that Paul was trying to get across, and so it was very much more like reading an essay. But Exodus is reading a Bible story, and so what we want to do is take you on a pathway each time so that you're doing a couple different steps. So the first thing we want you to look at is, what does the story say? Who are the characters? And so we want to encourage you to be an investigative reporter. When you think of somebody on the news, they ask the who, what, where, when, why, how of a situation, right? Who are the people that are affected in the story? What, what is the situation that they're facing? Why are they in this situation? When is it taking place? And how is it going to be resolved? And so if you look at your homework or your, your workbook, I'm going to ask you to open up your book to page 11, I think. No, well, yeah. 11 is the scripture reading. And if you look to page 15, <clears throat> hope you can all see that. <clears throat> the first step we're going to ask you to do is what we've called the look section. And look just means we want you to look at the text. We want you to look at the story that we've given to you, which is usually about a chapter or two chapters. You can think of it as like watching 10 minutes of a movie. It's basically a couple frames of a movie. Um, and we want you to look at that and say, who are the people here? And what are they doing? And what are the problems they're facing? And why are they in this, this situation? And so if you look at page 15, I've listed the people that are in this first couple chapters, the people of Israel, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the midwives, God is on the next page, Moses, Pharaoh's daughter. And so what we, what, we, what we want you to do as you read through Exodus 1 and 2 is just to see what do you learn about all these people? What do you learn about God? What does this text tell you about him? What does it tell you about the people of Israel? And if you have any questions on how to do that, you can talk to your table leaders. Basically what I do is I sit down with my page and I have about six highlighters beside me and every time I see people of Israel, I highlight green, people of Israel, people, as I read through it the first time. And then I go back and I look and see, okay, what does this tell me about the people of Israel? Well, it says that they were ruthlessly oppressed. So then I write down, they're ruthlessly oppressed. Just so we get information about who they were, what their situation was in, that kind of thing. Same with God, just highlight, a yellow is always God in my book. And I just highlight every time his name comes up. And then I look back later on, I say, what do I learn about God from this sentence? And I just write down thoughts. So it's very much just observing, observing the text. You're not trying to come up with any interpretation or any any ideas out of your head. It's just what's there on the page. <clears throat> and then we want to just summarize in our minds what events are recorded. And so I give you a section and I say, so how would you say this in a sentence to somebody? What events happen here? And there's no like right answer. 
Um, it's just an idea of how you'd summarize what those ideas are, what events happened. And then where do some of these events take place? That helps us kind of place them on a map so we can picture out how long it would be to travel between places, that kind of thing. When? So we want to look at what kind of time frame. Sometimes the Bible tells us how long it is between an event taking place. And I'm going to show you the importance of that when we look at Abraham later. But we want to look at some of the things that mark the time. Why? And then some of the why questions. So that is all this first spoke of our pathway. We want to first look. What does the text say? What was, if Moses wrote the book of Exodus, which we think he, he like that's probably the best kind of idea of who did. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Exodus because it doesn't have a bottom author by. <laughs> um, if Moses wrote it, what, was he tr what story was he trying to tell the people that he was writing it to? What did he want them to know about the people of Israel, about God? What was the ideas he was trying to communicate? And then we go on to the next step saying, okay, now do we know what it says. What does it mean? And so there's a couple ways we're going to look at what it means. So the first one, if you look at page 18 in your book, There's a section that this is completely optional. It's not something we're going to do in our small groups. It's something that you would do at home um, as you're prepping for the study, if you want to. But it's a whole Bible connection section. And what it does is it shows you how this story reference or <clears throat> how this story connects to the rest of the Bible. How Exodus wanted to, the themes of it, the ideas of it are shown in other parts of Scripture. And this is where you get a real love for how the Bible all fits together. And for how all of it, I have a cross here for Jesus, because Jesus comes up way later in the biblical story, but how all of the Bible is kind of pointing forward to the fact that we need a savior. And so this whole Bible connections isn't going to give you necessarily more information on the passage that we're studying, but it's going to show how this passage connects to the biblical story as a whole. So this is going to be a really rich section for you a lot of reflection in it, um, but like I said, it's not, it's not mandatory for you to do, for you to do before coming here um, because we, we're not going to necessarily refer it. It's more for your own, your own growth. <clears throat> okay, after that, page 23, a second way we're going to say what does it mean is this section that we call the learn section. If you have been here before, we used to call it no, the no section, but we changed it to learn because learn sounds better. Makes more sense. This is something we are going to do as a table group when we get together, so you don't have to worry about doing that at home, uh, page 23 and 24 in your book. And that's just giving us a little bit deeper understanding of what this passage means, what the significance of it is. So we've, we've looked at these first two chapters at home if we can. We come here, uh, we discuss them, we see what we've learned from that, and then we look at a little bit deeper into that passage. What can we do, um, or what can we learn more about it? After that, we normally have a time of teaching where from up front I'll maybe clarify some things or kind of add some new ideas to that. And the final part of our morning, we take you on this final leg of the journey, and we call this the live section. And this is where we get to today. We say, based on what this text says and based on what this story means, how should it affect the way I think and the way I act today? Right? Because we know that the Bible was not written just to tell us history about the people of Israel. The Bible was talent, told to teach us who God is, who we are as people, how God has acted in history, and so everything within Scripture should inform the way we live and act today. And so we are going to get to today, 
we're going to get to how the rubber hits the road and how our lives should be shaped by the Bible, but we're going to do it through this pathway. We're not going to go straight there for reading the text because we first need to know what did it mean to them or what, what did it say to them, what did it mean to them, what does it mean to us, and how should that affect the way we think and act. So that's why we've structured this study the way it is. We are not giving application questions right at the beginning. The first bunch of questions is observation, and then we go into more interpretation. What does it mean? And then we go into application. How should it affect our thoughts and our actions? So hopefully that is clear. And if you have any questions on that, your table leaders are very familiar with how this all works because we've just done this pattern over and over again for years, and it seems to keep working. When you come on a, on a Wednesday morning, Generally, this is going to be like four 25-minute kind of segments. So we're going to take about 25 minutes to review what we read at home, if we had time to look through that. If you haven't had time to look through it, like I said, just come, and you'll read the scripture together. You'll kind of get a refresher on what you might have missed. So we'll spend about 25 minutes at our table doing that. We'll spend about 25 minutes at our table doing that learn section, those pages, and saying what can we learn uh, deeper about the significance of this passage then we'll have about 25 minutes of teaching. Within that, we have worship, sometimes at the beginning, sometimes at the end, depending on how the structure seems to work best. Today we're doing it at the end. And then we have about 25 minutes at the end for the live section, the application, and for prayer. Because we know when we get to that spot, when we say, how should it change the way I think and how I act, then we say, oh man, I need the Lord <laughs> for this to actually happen. Because I see that I'm not living in line with that, my thoughts are not in line with that. Um, we get to that point where we see uh, we need prayer from each other in order to kind of live the way that God has asked us to or called us to. And so that naturally flows into our prayer time. So that's what you can expect when you come on a Wednesday morning, kind of four 25-minute segments of working through this material and then worship and a coffee break in the middle. We will let you stretch your legs and grab coffee and that kind of thing. <laughs> to, start off with, to start off with, I'm going to show you a movie trailer. Hopefully you're familiar with the movie. If not, probably some people at your table will be, but you don't need to answer any questions about it. If you know, if you know the movie that this trailer is about, try to think in the back of your mind. You don't have to answer this out loud, but think of the connection, why I'm showing it. What does this story have to do with the book of Exodus, do you think? Maybe you can kind of think it through as it goes. Okay. I dreamed a dream in time gone by When hope was high, life worth living I dreamed that love would never die I dreamed that God would be forgiving
So, have most people seen that movie, Les Miserables? When I was, uh, when I was married, um, the summer after we got back from our honeymoon, my parents took us to uh, the Orpheum Theatre and we watched it on, uh, on stage and it was great, the first time I'd ever heard about the story and it's a beautiful story of redemption, of rescue. Um, and so the reason I showed it is because the story of Les Miserables is a story that has as its premise, has as its basis, two promises that kind of follow throughout the whole story. Think in your mind, what would the promises be? You know, who, with who, what, who made promises to who and what that got the story in action? Well, the main character, Jean Valjean, he's a convict. And he gets out of prison and he goes in to spend a night. A bishop allows him to come to his home for the night. And while he's there, Jean Valjean, who's still in kind of convict mentality, steals some candlesticks and runs out the door in the middle of the night. And he gets caught by the police and brought back. And the bishop, instead of having him incarcerated, says to Jean Valjean, oh, you left too early. I was going to give you my other silverware as well. And he pretended that he gave it to him as this gift. And he talks to Jean Valjean after, and he says, I want you to use this opportunity to become an honest man. And so Jean Valjean makes a promise to him that he is going to change his life. And so that is one promise that kind of is the basis of this whole movie. The second promise, as the story goes on, he becomes a wealthy, um, it doesn't show how in the movie, but somehow he rises to a position of mayor in a town, and he has a, a factory. Uh, where he employs a lot of people, and one of the women in his factory, unbeknownst to him, gets kicked out because she's pregnant, and she has to live on the streets, and she has a horrible life. It gives birth to a baby that she has to give to adoption or kind of to this innkeeper to take care of. And uh, he finds her in a destitute spot and realizes that, you know, she was one of his employees and that uh, she was kind of wrongfully dismissed, and she's dying, and he decides that he's going to take it upon himself to adopt her daughter and to rescue her daughter. And so the promise made to Fantine, this mother, is another promise that is the basis of the story. And so you see that story in the woods with him and this little girl who's all uh, just in a bad state. She wasn't being taken care of very well at the inn that she was at. And he comes and he rescues her from these awful people. And he, she grows up into this beautiful, young, cultured woman. And so these two promises are the basis of that whole movie. He's fulfilling his promise to the bishop and to God that he's going to become an honest man. And he's fulfilling this promise to Fantine that he's going to rescue her daughter. So I want you to imagine what would happen if you walked into Les Miserables a half an hour into the movie and you watched him at the innkeeper's house picking up the girl and rescuing her, but you didn't know these two promises. You didn't know what had come before. Well, you'd get to know the rest of the story, but you wouldn't know the significance of why he's doing this. Why is he rescuing this girl? Why is it really remarkable that he is an honest man. Why is this man named Javert chasing him all over the country, <laughs> trying to bring him back to prison? You there's a whole bunch of the story that you wouldn't understand because you walked in 30 minutes into the movie, right? And so as we open the book of Exodus, it's like we're walking 30 minutes into the story of Les Miserables because we see a whole bunch of actions unfold right away. Uh, we see God interacting with his people, but we don't necessarily know why. What is the promise that's behind the reason why God is asking or acting? And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do kind of the backstory to Exodus. We're going to look at what the promises are that God is fulfilling, that he is um, acting upon as he saves his people in this book. And so that's what our morning is going to be looking about at that backstory. So that we know the promises, so that when we see God act, we'll say, oh, I know why he's doing it. I know the significance of why he's doing that. 
So the story of Exodus is a rescue story, like Les Miserables. It's based on four promises that God makes to a specific family. So what I'm going to get you to do to start off with is on page three in your workbooks, we're going to open to page three. We're going to read the first few verses of Exodus together just so we center in our minds who this family is that God's going to rescue. And then we're going to um, just kind of briefly remember the backstory of this family. If you read through the book of Genesis this summer with a bunch of us who read through it, you'll know that. But if you didn't, we want to catch you up to speed as to who they are and who the characters are. And then we're going to have you look at the promises that form the basis of the book of Exodus. And so if you're on page three, you'll see a question that says, who is this family? I'll read that first paragraph right above it. It says, the book of Exodus recounts the story of God interacting with his one family. God reveals himself to them and he allows them to know his character. He rescues them from slavery. He provides for them in the wilderness and teaches them how to live in relationship with him so that they can be a holy nation. So who is this family? What do we know about them? as the book of Exodus starts out. So Exodus 1 to 5, uh, can you put that on the screen, Marilyn? I'm going to read through the passage together. I'll just read it. This is how the book of Exodus starts, and you'll read this as you, if you do your lesson preparation for next week. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, Joseph, was already in Egypt. So what does that tell us? We're going to do some practice who questions here. It says, who is the father listed in this passage? What's the name of the father? Jacob. Yeah. So it says the sons of Israel, and it, went, it says with Jacob. So Jacob and Israel are the same person. Jacob was his birth name. Uh, when God had an encounter with him in the book of Genesis, God renamed him Israel, which means he struggles with God. So if you see Jacob or Israel in the Bible, it's talking about the same person. Um, so his name is Jacob or Israel. Jacob and Israel, both of those names are his. How many sons does he have? He has 12. They're listed 11 there as the first in chapter 2, or question, sorry, verse 2, 3, 4. And then it says Joseph was already in Egypt, so Joseph was his 12th son. We're going to find out how that happened. So in total, how many family members are mentioned when the story of Exodus opens? It's important for us to know how many people are here. 70. Yeah, so we're going to see lots of bigger numbers later on, and we're going to marvel at how the 70 grows. But we need to know that when it started, when the story starts, there's only 70 of them. So this is like your one-generation family gathering or two-generation family gathering, right? When my parents, when my husband's family gets together, we do every three years, there's like 120 of us from his, his, par his, his mom had six siblings, and then they all had the kids, and then the grandkids, and the great-grandkids. So you kind of think of that, right? Like that's the family grouping, 70 of them at this point. Where are they living right now? In Egypt. Yeah, so we're going to figure out why they're there. And then what is this family called collectively as a group? Well, that's verses 6 and 7. If you want to follow to that, Marilyn. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So they are called the Israelites. Yeah, so that's when we see in the Bible the Israelites. It's all descendants of this family. They're called Israelites because Jacob, their, fa their father, was renamed Israel by God, and so they are his descendants, the Israelites. So the backstory of this family, if you read through the book of Genesis, we're going to quickly summarize it for you. There's a chart, I think, there, Marilyn. Yeah. So there's three people that you need to know specifically from this family. Abraham, who we're going to talk about later today. He was the original patriarch, like the great-grandfather of all these people that are being mentioned. 
And Genesis 12 to 22, it's 10 chapters recounting his story. This is in your workbook here, so you don't need to write anything down. Uh, it says that God called him away from worshiping idols. He was just a regular guy doing regular things. He didn't do anything special to earn God's favor, but God called him and made some promises to him. And we're going to look at those promises later. God invited him into a relationship with him, and he eventually gave him a son named Isaac. So then Isaac is this, the subject of the next couple chapters, Genesis 23 to 27. He's the son of Abraham, and he had two sons, Esau and Jacob. There's not much else told about Isaac. It's just kind of the story of his two sons. Um, Isaac's son Jacob then, Genesis follows him the rest of the time. Jacob, or I said Israel there in brackets. The last 12 chapters of Genesis are about him. He had 12 sons and one daughter. Uh, his son Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by the other brothers. Um, Joseph, when he was in Egypt, through a series of adventures, rose to a position of power there as their vice president or vice, um, whatever, second in command under the Pharaoh. And he had a, pl or a plan given to him by God on how to survive a famine that was coming to the land. And so the rest of Jacob's family came to Egypt later in order to survive that famine. And so the family was reunited and settled in Egypt. So that's not the, where they were from originally, but that's where they are now at the start of the story. So as we open Exodus, the family of Israel is in Egypt because they came there to escape the famine and because Joseph was already there. And that's where the book opens. If you read the book of Genesis and then you flip over to Exodus 1, it basically is like almost one sentence just continuing on. <laughs> it's like part two of the same story. And so that's where we're opening up. So what we want you to do now at your tables, practice doing some table discussion time. If you look at question four here, we're going to look at why is this family the focus of the book of Exodus? Why does God reveal himself and rescue the family so that they can be in relationship with him? Well, the answer is because of the covenant, the agreement that God made centuries earlier with Abraham. So you think this family, um, so their father was Jacob, his father was Isaac, this was Abraham. So like four generations ago, three generations ago, God made a promise. And that's why they are the, promise, the, the persons that are focused on in this book of Exodus. So we're going to spend the re remainder of our time familiar, familiarizing ourselves with the Abrahamic covenant. That's just fancy words to say the promise made to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant, okay? So what we're going to do is read these verses at our tables. Genesis 1, or 12, 1 to 3. Genesis 15, 1 to 7. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 8. Take turns, maybe reading at your table. In the charts, jot down just kind of every single promise that you see God making. And then we're going to try and clump them into four main kind of categories because they're repeated. They're often the same kind of ideas. And so first just jump, jot down as much information as you can of, of every single promise and try to categorize them into four. Okay, I was kind of walking around. It seems like most of you have worked through this. If you're still at that summary question then on what the four things are, we will do that together. Just call out, if you're comfortable, what are some of the things that you heard God saying over and over again? He doesn't just say, did you see some repetition here? He doesn't just say the same thing or different things in different ones. What does he say over and over again? Blessing. Yeah, so he's going to bless Abraham. What are some of the other things? Land. Yeah. A great name. Yeah. Offspring. What else? Kids and what? Kinsed land, yeah. <laughs> so if you group them together, um, the, the way that is kind of easy for me to think about them and the way we were kind of going to use it throughout the whole scripture uh, as we were throughout the whole study, we're going to talk about the fact that God promised land. That came up in all four, right? 
that God promised people. So in that we're saying descendants to Abraham, that there'd be a great nation, right? They promised offspring, that kind of all fits under the people category. That he promised to bless Abraham. And that includes lots of different things, right? When you think of the fact that he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a great name, well, that's part of the blessing. He says in some of the passages, I'm going to protect you. Well, that's part of the blessing to Abraham, right? He's going to protect Abraham. It says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's part of the blessing, right? He's blessing Abraham with, his, uh, with a relationship with him. And then the fourth promise is that he's going to bless the world through this family. He's going to bless Abraham and then the whole world. This isn't a blessing just for Abraham and his family. It's going to be somehow translated into the whole world. So I want you to put these four verses somewhere where you're going to remember them. Or we're going to keep referring back to this one. Um, but think through, I want these four things to be in your mind all semester as we walk, work through this book. And actually, I want these things, if you, from here on in, every time you read the Bible to be in your mind. Because they come up all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. The promises made to Abraham. And if we know what those four promises are, it really helps us understand the Bible. Especially the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is God fulfilling all these promises um, in different ways at different times. And so next week when we go through our lesson, we're going to have you evaluate. At the start of the book of Exodus, how is God's promise keeping doing? Rate these all on a scale of 1 to 10. And we're going to get you to evaluate at this point in time, which promises do you see God working on? But this, these four promises are a key to understanding a lot of the Old Testament. And so when you read a passage, if you guys are familiar with the story of Esther, you know the story of Esther... The whole Jew, Jews all over the world were going to be killed. And Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle, says to her, he encourages her to stand up to the king and to, um, to uh, encourage, like tell the king not to kill the Jews. And he says this, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That's a famous verse if you've ever studied Esther, for such a time as this. But why is he so adamant? Why does he so firmly believe that the Jews will be saved? Because of the promise. Because God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm not going to let you be extinguished. And so he has this firm belief in who God is because of this promise. And so this promise is referred to over and over and over again. If you read um, Luke 2, which is when Jesus comes on the scene, Zechariah says, Lord, we know that you've come to redeem your people because of the promise you made to Abraham. And so way back, way in the New Testament, a thousand pages later, they're saying this, Jesus coming to earth is in response to your promises made to Abraham. And so if you can keep these four promises in your mind, as you read the Bible, you'll see, oh, this is why God is doing what he's doing to fulfill those promises to Abraham. So we are going to look now as a group as to how Abraham knows that this promise is going to be fulfilled. He asks that question. So page five, we're going to have the scripture on the screen. It says, will God keep this promise? How do we know? Oh, actually, before we do that, can I stop at two things? Some of you mentioned this as you went through. If you read Genesis 12, there was a time marker here. Did you see what the time marker was? How old was Abraham when God first approached him? When he first approached him, he was what? Did you see it, Genesis 12? 75, yeah. So the first time he was 75... 
Genesis 17, did it say how old, that, how old he was there? 99. And so this is why we ask you to take note of things that mark time. Because if you just read Genesis 12 to 17, that's only five chapters. That might have happened in a week. But no, we see this one happened when he was 75. This one happened when he's 99. That's significant for us to know. Because he's waiting 24 years for these promises to be fulfilled already. And that's a long time. And if we had a promise someone made to us and it was 24 years later and it wasn't fulfilled yet, we'd start to wonder too. <laughs> is that promise ever going to be fulfilled? Right? So we can kind of then we can have empathy or compassion or understand Abraham's plight. If someone told me something 24 years ago that he was going to do it and it hasn't happened yet, I'd start wondering. And so we understand him. So we want to take note of those time markers. The other thing that this helps us do when we take note of time markers is we realize that God appeared to Abraham three times in 25 years. He's not popping up every week, right? <laughs> and so there's lots of years where Abraham just had to faithfully live as God called him to. Just a mundane, normal life as a nomad in the desert, doing his daily stuff, taking care of his family, doing his chores. It wasn't like, this is giving us a highlight reel. But if we think that, oh wow, God was popping up talking to Abraham every day, then we think our life is boring and mundane if we are just doing life and trying to live faithfully before God. But if we understand, actually, no, it's just three times in 25 years, it gives us a different perspective on what we can expect in terms of kind of our relationship with God. There may be high points, there may be low points, there may be lots of times where we're just trying to walk faithfully. And Abraham did that too. And so we want to keep note of those time markers. Okay, page five. How do we know, though, that God is going to keep his promises? Abraham asked that question, which is a legitimate question. So in response to this question, you'll see there, God initiates a ceremony. So today, if you're going to sell, my husband's a realtor, and if he is selling a house with somebody, they all sign contracts, right, at the lawyer's office. They didn't have contract signing in the ancient world. <clears throat> they didn't have paper, so they had a different way of demonstrating their commitment to fulfilling a promise. So we're going to look at that today. How does God sign his covenant with Abraham? So we're going to read this passage. I'll read it out loud. And then we will take notes on that. As we read it, think in your mind, what does God do? What does Abraham do? And what do God's actions signify? So think, have those questions in the back of your mind. Okay, Genesis 15, 7 to 21. Uh, God, so the he there is God. He also said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that you'll keep your promises? How can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. So I want you to picture what's happening here. These three animals have been brought, three animals, heifer, goat, ram. Um, they've been brought and they've been cut in half. And they've been laid one half of the animal on one side of the path and the other half of the animal on the other side of the path. And there's this pathway through um, kind of animal halves that is in front of him. Uh, the birds he didn't cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. So he's shooing away. Obviously, you know, if you've seen vultures and stuff, they're going to come down, and when they see blood, they're going to come, and Abraham's shooing them away to leave this place clear. What happened next? Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Continue on. 
When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I give this land. From the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Quick hint, if you come across a list of names like that, just pretend you know what it says. <laughs> and if you don't want to say it, just say those places. <laughs> or a list of genealogies like that. Just say it with confidence. People will believe you. So what does God do in the story? Well, first of all, he tells Abraham, he initiates a ceremony. He says, bring these animals before me, right? And then he puts Abraham to sleep. He says, Abraham fell into deep sleep. And then God gives him a prophecy about what's going to happen in the future. We're going to look at that in a bit more detail at the back, at, at the end of this. And then he... It says that when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So this is a symbol representing God, the smoking fire pot, the blazing torch passing between the pieces. So he walked between the pieces, the animals that were laid out. I'm going to say the significance of that later. What does Abraham do during all this time? What's he doing? Sleeping. So he's not participating in this ceremony at all. He cut up the animals and did what God said, but now he's not participating. He's just asleep. So we need to know what do God's actions signify? This walking between these animals, what does that signify? Well, in the ancient world, like I said, people didn't have contracts that they could sign. And so what they would do is they would do a ceremony like this. And you see it in other parts of scripture and you see it in other literature where they would cut an animal in half and then generally like most of the time, both the people would walk between this cut animal, this animal is cut in half, and they say, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, you can cut me in half like this animal is cut in half. And it was a, a symbolic picture of the way that they pledged that they would follow through on their end of the agreement. This was their pledge, that if you, they didn't fulfill, if they didn't sell their house for this price or whatever, you could cut them in half like that animal was cut in half. And so it was a symbolic way of pledging What's unique about this story is that Abraham doesn't do it at all, does he? It's God putting himself fully on the line. God is saying, if I do not fulfill my promises, um, my own name, my own kind of life as God is at stake. I am putting myself wholly at stake that I will fulfill every one of these promises. And you are not responsible for it at all, Abraham. It is fully on me. I'm going to make sure this happens. And so by God doing this, by him appearing as this blazing torch, as this fire pot going through the pieces, he's basically saying, Abraham, you can kill me, I mean, if we could kill God, if I don't fulfill my end of the promises. That's how serious I am that I'm going to fulfill it. I'm staking my very life, my existence as God on doing it. And so that's what Abraham is left with, this promise that God is obviously taking super seriously. When I first read that, um, it was just was astounding to me because I was always one of these people that thought I had to be good enough for God, that God was somehow wondering if his people were going to kind of measure up to the mark. And I realized he went on the line right from the very beginning himself for all of us. And we see that throughout scripture. He does everything for us and just calls us to live in response to that. And so God does that right from the very beginning of scripture. He puts himself fully on the line for his people. And so that's significant for us. We don't need, 
he wants us to live in response to how he has, what he's given for us, but it's not about us measuring up somehow to some standard, right, that is unattainable for us. God is doing it. He's calling us. He's putting in a plan of salvation, and nothing is going to stop him from doing what he has said he was going to do. Okay, the next question, why are the people of Israel, uh, Abraham's descendants in Egypt, at the beginning of the book of Exodus? Well, Genesis 15 gives us a different reason than we saw at the beginning of Exodus. So what does it say in Genesis 15? We're going to say, what is the theological reason that they are in Egypt? According to God's perspective on this whole situation, why are they there? And so let's read again. Uh, Marilyn, if you can go back to the Genesis 15, 13 to 16, the slide that just had the scripture there. Uh, one more. There. So this is with Abraham, like I said, remember three, four generations earlier. Genesis 15, uh, 35 chapters earlier in the Bible, God says to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants, so the people of Israel, will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. So why are they there? Because 400 years earlier, God had said, I'm bringing you there. He had a plan to bring them to Egypt. We're going to see why that was as we look through the study of Exodus. He's going to give the people of Israel this land that they're currently in, but he's giving the people who are there some time. He's saying the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there's a people, nation, within this land who is doing horrible, detestable things, and God's eventually going to kick them out of the land because of the horrible things they're doing, child sacrifices, all kinds of stuff. But in the meantime, he's giving them 400 years of grace. And he's sending the Israelites somewhere else to become a nation. And then he's saying, I'm going to bring them back. What do we see here that kind of foreshadows what's going to happen in Exodus? What's going to happen when they come back? They're going to have great possessions, right? It says you'll come out with great possessions. We're going to see as we look through the book, we want to keep this in the back of our mind too. How does that happen? What does that look like? And, that, and verse 14 tells us that they're gonna, he's going to punish the nation that is enslaving them. And so we have this promise in the back of our heads as we enter Exodus that, yes, the people are in the land, but God's going to do something to bring them out with great possessions and that he's going to punish the nation who is enslaving them. So this is their backstory to the book. That is a theological reason they're in Egypt because God sent them there. And what's a historical reason? On the next page, what's a historical reason there in Egypt? What did we say? What does it say at the beginning of Exodus? The famine. Yeah. They're in Egypt historically because the famine got them there. So from their perspective, from the people of Israel's perspective, they moved there because of the famine. But God knows he used the famine to get them there. And so we want to also realize from our study of Scripture that God uses world events. He uses everything to fulfill his sovereign purposes. He used that famine, which was all over the world there at that time, to bring the people of Israel to Egypt, which is what he had promised to do. And so this, world, this famine was not out of his control. It was not something that took him by surprise. It was something that he used to fulfill his purposes for people. And so we want to realize that that's our, the nature of how the scriptures perceive or talk about God, that he is sovereign, that he is in charge, that he is in control of the events of the world, and he uses world events for his purposes. Nothing takes him by surprise. So that's a lot that we've already absorbed about the nature of our God, that he is a promise keeper, that he is sovereign over the world, 
that the world is in his hands and in his control. And so from that, we want to just go into a time of, of worship, and then we're going to have a final uh, time to discuss around our tables.